you're new to Pikes Peak Christian Church, we're welcome this morning. Um, our mission is to help more people more often say yes to God. And our hope is that God would speak to you where you are in your particular place in life through the service. No matter what age you are, no matter what your church background is, it doesn't matter. God is always trying to get our attention to speak to us. And today's kind of a special day because today marks the last uh, message in our series on Ephesians. We've been in it for 36 weeks. I know for some of you, you're eager to move on to something else. For others, you wish we could have gone deeper. And we've learned a lot of great things through this book. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of people called the Ephesians. They were Gentiles. They're non-Jewish people who'd come out of a pagan background and very occultic, very mystical. They were into sorcery, witchcraft, and things like that. And they didn't realize that the powers they were dabbling with were evil powers. And when they came to know the good power, that there's a good power, God and, and the Holy Spirit, they began to um, latch onto that and realize they had the, the power to overcome the evil in their lives. And so we've, we've read through the book of Ephesians. We've just really looked in detail at what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. We've looked at our identity, who we are in Christ, that we are children of God, that we've been bought with the price, that we are, uh, we are his masterpieces, his works of art, and uh, all these things because we're in Christ. And then, then uh, we have to ask ourselves, so how should we live? And Paul's been addressing that in the last few chapters, 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians. How do we live it out in a world that's often very hostile to the, to the message that God has for us? And so uh, Paul gives us a very clear picture of what that's like to live out your faith in this world, and he describes it as warfare. He describes it as spiritual warfare. If you have a Bible, I'm going to read this section of Scripture from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints." Now, I want to share with you, before we actually look at, at the armor of God, uh, just a little bit of review for some of you who, who might not have been with us the last few weeks. But Paul says that we are in a spiritual battle, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Your enemy is not your spouse, not your kids, not your neighbor, not your boss, not the politicians. The enemy is behind that, behind that, trying to, trying to steal from you, trying to kill and destroy your relationships, and so we recognize that there's a spiritual battle taking place over every one of us. And whenever someone gives their life to Christ, the battle intensifies because, because Satan wants to bring you back into his kingdom. When you were cooperating with him, it, there wasn't much of a fight. He, he could just let you go your way because you were already cooperating. But when you choose to go against him, it's a radical change. So radical, Paul describes it as going from, light, from, from the dark to the light, kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so because of this spiritual battle taking place over all of us, we are the spoils of the war. We need spiritual weapons. We need spiritual armor. We do not come born with this stuff. It is spiritual. It is the armor of God. It comes from him. You can only get it in a relationship with God. If you are not a Christian, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I feel bad for you because you're exposed to the enemy. You have nothing to fight with. Your, your human intellect, your willpower is not strong enough to defeat this powerful enemy. 
See, Paul says that we have this battle against these spiritual uh, powers. It's headed up by Satan, but, it, but there are principalities and powers and thrones and dominions. There's, it's like an organized army working against you. And pity the person who has no spiritual resources to call on in the battle. Now, it's a very personal battle because Paul, Paul uses a word for warfare that refers to hand-to-hand combat. He says, we struggle not or we wrestle not. We wrestle uh, wrestling is close. It's not like lobbing grenades back and forth. It is intense conflict. It's, it's the most intense kind. When, when I wrestled in high school in, in PE class, not, a, not the regular sport, I preferred basketball to wrestling, but I learned from wrestling, you can't relax. You, you can't be in the, in the, on the mat with someone and say, I'm going to take a little breather, and then you're going to slam you right down to the mat. You know, anytime you pause, it's, it's a vulnerable position. So Paul uses this word of, you're wrestling. This is intense. This is very personal. It's you and him. Be prepared, or you're going to get pinned. Then he uses the word over and over again, four times, he uses the word stand, because he realizes that the, the best defense against Satan is resistance. It's not giving him any ground in your life. It's putting up a fight and say, you're not getting any, any part of me. I'm not going to let you get a foothold into my life. Last week, we looked at the verse from James that says, resist the devil, and he will do what? He'll flee from you. Resist, resist. So, so think about this as we go through the parts of the armor. The majority of the work is resistance. The majority of the work is resisting what Satan's trying to do in our lives. There is some offensive weaponry, and we'll get to that at the very end. But if you aren't resisting, your offensive um, weaponry won't do you much good. Because you're getting undercut all the time. And I've known people in ministry who are advancing the word of God and they're not taking care of their personal life or their marriage. And, and their soul gets damaged because they let the resistance down. They thought, I'm doing all this stuff for God out here. I'm preaching the gospel and I'm winning people to the, to the Lord. Yeah, but you're being eaten away on the inside because you, you've let your defenses down. It's not that it's one or the other. It's I've got to... I've got to put up this resistance first so I can be effective with the offensive weaponry. Now, Paul looks to uh, the Roman soldier as kind of a model. You know, Paul had been in prison for many years in Roman prisons. He probably saw soldiers quite often. And as he looked at the armor that a soldier wore, he says, you know, we Christians have our own armor in a spiritual way. And I, I wouldn't get wrapped up that in, the, in the imagery thinking that's what the message is, is these images the real message is the things that are represented by the images. That's what Paul's trying to get at. There, there are these key words that are tied with the pieces of armor. That's what we want to focus on. So, so what kind of armor has he given us? Well, let's start with the first piece. It is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. The belt for the Roman soldier was something that he could fasten and tighten, which held up the loose undergarments. Often they would wear tunics, which if you have worn a tunic, it's a very loose undergarment, at least for, for uh, the Roman soldier. A loose undergarment. They didn't have T-shirts and briefs for underwear. They wore the tunic. Well, you can't run very well in a tunic, and you, you get caught up in it and trip. So they would pull it up and tuck it into their belt. It's kind of like someone saying, hey, we're getting ready for action. I'm going to tighten my belt. I don't want my pants dragging and falling off. I'm going to tighten my belt. Uh, I've been to weddings where... Uh, the maid of honor will kind of tie up the, the bride's dress. Is that a bustle? Whatever that is. And I, I've never had one. Um, <laughs> but I've seen them in weddings. 
And they don't want that train dragging too much behind them, so they fasten it up. Well, it's, it's like that. You're a soldier. You get, you're getting ready for action. I'm getting ready to run. I'm getting ready to move. Get ready to fight. You've got to tuck this stuff in. And Paul says that's like the truth, the truth. It is like your, your preparation for the battle. And the reason this is so critical is because the truth is opposite of everything Satan is and does. In John chapter 8, verse 44 Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. He says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is deceitful. Truth is the opposite. In fact, the word truth means that which is not hidden or concealed. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. When something's true, it aligns with what is real. And when we live by the truth, we're saying, I'm, I'm holding to that which is true that corresponds to God's reality, not to the lies that Satan has presented to me. But it's more than knowing the truth. See, that we find truth in God's word, says God's word is truth. But there's more to truth than just knowing that it's in a book. It's living by the truth. It's knowing the truth, it's believing the truth, and it's living by the truth. Because I, I mentioned last week, Satan knows the Bible better than many of us. That doesn't make him holy doesn't make him Christ-like. He knows it. He just doesn't live it. You need to know the word, and you need to live the word. And we choose to live according to the truth. We find this freedom to move forward. Now, this truth, as it impacts life, is something Paul's been talking about in Ephesians several places. For example, in chapter 4, he says, in order to grow up, we have to speak the truth in love. He says in chapter 4, to put off the old life, put off falsehood, and put on truth. Speak the truth one to another. So there's this truth is something that, that becomes who we are. I'm a, I'm a truthful person. And Paul is saying not only do you believe the truth, you live by the truth. Because Satan's going to come along and he's going to try to deceive you. One of the biggest lies of Satan is that the truth of God's word needs to be, needs to be amended. It needs to be revised to fit our culture today. It just doesn't work in today's culture. And so some things, yeah, that's biblical, but that's old-fashioned. It doesn't work anymore. You know, a big, a big issue is marriage. You know, that's an old idea that worked back then. It doesn't work today. We need a new model. We need a method. So, so people are tempted, and believers are even tempted, to compromise God's word and say, I know that's what the Bible says, but I'm not sure it's true. See, that's where, that's where Adam and Eve fell. Adam and Eve fell because they, they didn't hold to what God said as truth and to live by the truth. We want to build our lives according to the truth, according to God's standards. God wants us to hitch up this belt. That's the first piece of armor. The next piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate was a, a, she, a, a breastplate that covered the vital organs, covered the heart in particular. It was made of leather or of bronze, and it symbolizes the righteousness that God gives us in Christ. That protects us, uh, the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? It is the perfection of Christ applied to our lives. In the book of Isaiah, it says, um, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. All of our righteous deeds to God are like filthy rags. It means as good as you are, you're not even close to being good enough. If you think you're going to be saved because you're a good person, you have missed the mark big time. Because, by the way, that word... um, Filthy rags in the Hebrew means a woman's menstrual cloth. 
It means something that you discard, you get rid of. So, so he, and it says, that's our righteousness before God. We go, I'm a pretty good person. How many times have you heard someone say, that's a good man, that's a good woman? But our goodness compared to God's standards fall way short. And so we need a righteousness that God gives us, a perfection that comes through relationship with Christ. And so we, we read about this in the Scriptures. We read about this righteousness that God presents through Jesus, but it's a righteousness then that translates into our lifestyle. See, when you become a Christian, you are made righteous in God's eyes. And you don't become unrighteous. If you, if you were, you'd be disqualified for heaven. So you're righteous. So Paul can't be speaking of pick, pick up your Christ righteousness again because you already have it. You already have it. Why do I pick it up and put it on? Now, what he's talking about here is this righteousness that comes from a relationship with God, a righteousness that is right living. It is a righteousness through the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It means we, we look like we're changed. Righteousness, and we don't like that word. It seems like a very churchy word. If someone called you a righteous person, you go, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not righteous. But let's simplify it. It just means you're doing what's right. You're doing what, what God approves of. That's what's, that's what's right. Now, Paul actually explains what this righteousness is. In the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And notice here that the breastplate, instead of righteousness, is faith and love. Well, is Paul talking about something different? No, not really. What he's saying is, righteous living really looks like this. It looks like faith, and it looks like love. Several years ago, our elders did a study in the New Testament to find out what's at the core of being a follower of Jesus, and we found these two things. That a follower of Jesus has a deep faith in God and a great love for everyone. In fact, Paul, at one point in Galatians, says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So if you're trying to figure out what's the right thing to do, well, is it a faith and is it loving? If you do those two things well, you're living a righteous life. So, so we have this breastplate of righteousness to live that pleases God. And the reason that's important, and, uh, and it's, it's always important to remember, even though we do those things, that's not what makes us righteous. We live righteous lives because Christ has made us righteous. I know that sounds kind of like a, a hard thing to get our head wrapped around, but we are becoming as God already sees us. And the reason that's critical is because even as a Christian, you will walk out in your faith and at times feel like, man, I really blew it this time. I lost my temper with my kids. Or, or my mind went to a very dark place. I said some things that were very hurtful to someone. My actions were very rude and harsh. And, and Satan will come along, and here's what he does, because Satan's an accuser. Satan will come along and say, see, you're, you never were good enough. You never were worthy enough. You should be ashamed of yourself because God's ashamed of you. And we walk around as believers feeling guilty and ashamed, and I, I didn't do the right thing, and I don't pray enough, and I don't give enough, and, and we beat ourselves up. But you have to go back again to remind ourselves my original righteousness, the foundation of that comes not because of who I am and what I do, but because of who Jesus is. When you get to the book of Revelation chapter 12, we, we find in chapter 12 that Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. And here's how he's overcome. It says we overcome him by the blood of the lamb. That's the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He's overcome by, by the cross and the word of our testimony. Which, which basically is my testimony of, of my, my submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. That's my story. 
Here's what Jesus did for me, and here's, here's what I did in relation to the story. I gave my life to Jesus. You overcome the accusations of the enemy. There is nothing that stands between you and God that will keep you out of God's presence. Satan may think there is. Satan may try to remind you, try to make you feel guilty, but you overcome him with the breastplate of righteousness. Next is the shoes of the gospel of peace. Shoes for the Roman soldier were very thick leather-soled shoes. And the reason they were thick was because they walked, they walked long distances, but also because along the way they would encounter these traps. Now, they didn't have landmines at the time, but they would set traps by taking sticks, sharpening them to a point, burying them in the ground with the point up, and then covering them sometimes with sticks and leaves. So when the soldiers marched through, they may step on a stick and it would pierce the sole of their, their shoe and, and puncture the sole of their foot. And if you've got a foot infection or a foot injury and you can't march anymore, you're done. You're basically useless. And so these thick soles help protect them. But also, uh, they would take these thick soles and pound hobnails in them so they became like cleats. So, so sticking out of the bottom of the shoe were these nail um, points. Why? To give them traction. Traction. And we see that in sports. In sports, depending on the weather... Your cleats can be vital. In, in football, I, I hear sometimes the uh, announcer says, well, the players have changed the cleats on their feet because of the weather conditions. You know, it's a slick out there, or it's a, there's a film of ice forming on the, on the surface, and they change their cleats. They may go to longer cleats. Why? Because they need traction. You can't resist if you don't have traction on your feet. I mean, someone will just push you, and you'll slide. So we need it for traction. But here's another thing. They could also use their, their shoes to inflict harm on the enemy. They could stomp on their feet, stomp on their head, and they would puncture because of their shoes. And so Paul says, this is, uh, this is a piece of your weaponry, but, but it represents the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. See, the gospel is all about peace. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel gives us peace. And this peace allows us to enter God's presence without any fear at all. But there's another aspect of, of this. When I think of the, the gospel peace, it's not just for me and peace with me and God. It's peace for you and God. Not just you, the people outside the church, the people that live in foreign lands. And the book of Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so, so with the shoes of the gospel, we advance the message of Christ in other places. But remember that the theme of this is resistance. I want to I bring to your attention, there might be another meaning that, that actually Paul is getting at. Because this idea of the gospel and peace takes us back to chapter 2. If you were here, remember this incredible thing God did when he sent Jesus to die on the cross and shed his blood. That these two groups, Jew and Gentile, Israelite and Canaanite, brought together into one family. These enemies were brought together into one family through Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul describes it in the second chapter. Now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So there's peace. We're not just in the same church. We're family. We're brothers and sisters. And so when you come to the fourth chapter, Paul says, because of this unity that God has created, this supernatural unity, make every effort to maintain the peace. Maintain that peace. Why? Because one of Satan's greatest 
attacks is to cause division within the church. Satan delights in nothing more than turning believer against believer. If he, can, if he can split a church, if he can cause inward tension within a church, that church can't move forward. That church can actually become a stain on the image of Christ in the, in the, in the culture. People look and go, all those people do is fight each other. They're so negative. They're so contentious. And so you have to be on guard against Satan trying to infiltrate your world to cause you to be divisive. Well, how does that look? Well, by the way, Satan got a hold of Peter. Remember last week? Peter, the same Peter that said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, hours later, the same day, spoke some words to Jesus, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, that, that Satan can speak to believers. And Satan can cause you to look at the person across the room or the person in front of you and say, um, you need to attack that person. You need to write a post on Facebook about that person. You need to shun that person. You need to gossip about that person. And what does that do? It, it causes division. Satan can just stand back and say, I don't have to fight them. They're fighting each other. And in so doing, they're becoming ineffective as a church. So we have to be on guard to maintain the peace. Several years ago, we had a gentleman in our church, and he didn't like uh, one of the beliefs of the church. And he thought maybe he single-handedly could change all of that. And he wrote to a bunch of members of our church and shared his position. And we had to send a letter to all those same people and say, He's wrong, he's off base, because here's what we believe and here's why. And that man left our church and never came back. But gratefully, he didn't stay and try to divide the church because that would have given Satan, not God, the glory. Next is a shield of faith. The shield of faith. There are different kinds of shields, and probably the one Paul was speaking of was one that's about four foot tall and two and a half feet wide. It was almost like a door. And you could actually get behind the shield and it, could, it would protect your whole body. And because it was rectangular, you could stand beside another soldier and put your shield side by side, and you could have a whole wall established by everybody putting their shield up. Not only that, as one force, you could move forward against the enemy. And these shields were typically made of wood and covered with leather. The soldiers would then um, soak them with water because when the enemy would shoot these, these arrows that had been dipped in tar and lit on fire... They would come, and when they would hit the, the shield, they would penetrate the leather, and the moisture would extinguish them. And so Paul is likening that to our faith. He says, faith is our shield. Faith extinguishes the darts of the evil one. How do you fight Satan when he comes at you with these darts? What are the darts? The darts are the temptation that, that, that appeals to your desires. So Satan knows how to go after you and cause lustful thoughts. Satan knows how to prompt your pride or your greed or selfishness or your ungratefulness or or selfishness. He knows how to go after those things and how to appeal to you. Uh, Temptation targets your desires, just like marketers do. They target your desires. He targets your desires and and, and continues to shoot arrows. And Paul never says we're going to stop the arrows from being shot. They're going to keep coming relentlessly. But he says if you raise your shield, you can extinguish every single one of them. You don't have to give in to a single temptation. Satan fires your way. We have the protection. Now, the, the faith isn't faith in our faith. It's not, I be, because I have such a strong faith, I can defend myself. It's the object of our faith. Who are you believing in? Who, who is your trust in? Well, obviously, we trust in the Lord, just like the psalmist writes. Psalm chapter 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. The shield is God. 
It's the believer's trust in God. God becomes the one that protects you. Again, David says in Psalm 28, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. You are helped because you are trusting, not in your faith, but in the God who is stronger than the enemy. He will defend you. He will protect you. We have the shield of faith. A couple weeks ago at a leadership class, a couple shared with us that they've been living together for, for several years. And, you know, in our culture, that's pretty normal. It's pretty standard. And uh, they decided they're going to get married this fall. They want to get married before the Lord. They want to make their relationship right in God's eyes. But still, there was an issue. They're living together. And they're sleeping in the same bed. And they felt convicted by the Lord that if Jesus was really Lord, it needed to start right now. And so they told openly this group, we made a decision. We're not going to sleep together anymore. We have separate rooms. And we're going to abstain until we become husband and wife. And, and here's where faith comes in. Faith is saying, God, I believe your way is better. I believe that your way is the right way. I trust you, that you will bless us because of our obedience to you. That's the shield of faith. See, that's what Adam and Eve needed to do in the garden. When Satan came along and whispered to them, surely God didn't mean to say this. Surely God wasn't trying to communicate this. Adam and Eve says, you know what, Satan? God has already spoken. We trust that what he said is true. That's the end of the story. That's how we're going to live. That's what we're going to do. And when you're faced with the the lies of the enemy, when you're faced with temptation, you say, you know, I'm not going to give in to it. God has better for me. I'm going to trust him and trust his plan for my life. Next is the helmet of salvation. Helmet of salvation. Oh, by the way, I'm going to back up just a second here because there's a key verse I want to share from 1 John 5, 4. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You overcome the one who rules the world through faith. Okay, the next one. Helmet of salvation. Helmets were made of leather or metal, coarse covered this very vital organ called the brain. And it would come up to the forehead, sometimes the flaps that covered the ears, even, even oftentimes a, a, a piece in back to cover your neck. Really, it was just the, the face, the eyes, and the nose, the mouth that were exposed. And we know from sports and from any physical activity how vital helmets are. I mean, I look back at the pictures from football when it first began. It was this leather Leather things they strap to their heads to now these high-tech, foam-insulated helmets. We know concussions can be life-threatening. When I was a kid, nobody wore a bike helmet. No, that's, why we're so, that's why my generation is so brain-damaged. We, we, yeah, we didn't, wear, we didn't wear helmets back then. And now you wear helmets to ride tricycles. You wear helmets in, in, in all sports. You wear helmets when you're canoeing a boat. You, some wear helmets when they're skiing. I mean, why? Because you want to protect the head. I'm not against helmets at all. Because I know, I know how vital this thing is. And if you don't think it's vital, you don't need to protect yours, but I'm protecting mine. There are people who drive around Colorado because um, the law says you don't have to wear your helmet when you're riding your motorcycle. And there's a guy in our church. He's not here now, but years ago, a man in our church who borrowed a motorcycle and rode it around the block, and he wasn't wearing a helmet, pulled into his front yard, and lost a little bit of control, hit a tree, banged his head, and caused irreparable brain damage. From that time on, he, he struggled to walk and struggled to talk. And there came a point in his life where he actually told his wife, I'm not the man that you married. You don't deserve this. I release you. And she divorced him. See, that the head is so important. And you are not going to be a soldier that lasts very long if you don't have your helmet on, because all it takes is one swipe with the sword... And you are done. And so 
Paul describes this, this helmet in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.8. Paul calls it the helmet of salvation, but then in 1 Thessalonians he says this, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So now he calls it the, the helmet of the hope of salvation. What does that mean? I thought we were already saved. Why am I hoping to be saved? Well, salvation has different phases. There's a past phase. I have been saved. That means I've been forgiven of my sins. I'm right in God's sight. There's a sense I am being saved, which is I'm overcoming the sin issues in my life. I'm being redeemed every day. Some, some people go to classes that we offer as a church, you know, celebrate recovery, healing journey, all these things to help us have victory over the sin issues, the memories, the, the lies, you know, those things. And so we get victory daily. There's a sense that we're being saved right now. So salvation is past, salvation is present, but salvation is also future. When you die, you want to be saved. You want to go to be with Jesus. And so Paul says in Thessalonians, that's what this helmet is. It's a hope of salvation. Now, why is that so important? Because if you don't know where you're going when, you're di- when you die, it makes it pretty hard to live an adventurous, risky life. If you have no clue what's going to happen after you die, how do you know how to live? And see, here's, here's where Satan comes into play here. Hebrews chapter 2. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, speaking of Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, people that don't know the Lord live in this fear of what's going to happen after they die. But the believer doesn't have that fear. You know. You should know. It's sad if you don't know. See, Paul could go to prison and say, you know what, if they release me, that's great because I get to do more ministry. If they kill me, praise God, I get to go to be with Jesus. I win either way. It's no loss. That's why, that's why missionaries can go out on the field and risk their lives. Some of you, most of you probably don't even know this, but we have missionaries we support in Azerbaijan. And some good friends of theirs, missionaries that have been an inspiration to them, uh, last week were camping in the, in the state of Georgia. And a shepherd came and shot the husband, shot their four-year-old boy. The wife ran off, fell over a cliff, and she died. And these, these individuals had given themselves to ministry and missions. Yet we're comforted by this knowledge. I know where they are now. They had already given their lives to Christ. They are experiencing their ultimate salvation in the Lord's presence. And so we have this helmet of salvation. Salvation that comes through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now we have one other weapon. This is, a, this is a piece of offensive weaponry. It's defensive and offensive. It is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There's two types of swords the soldiers would use. One would be called the broadsword, which was very long. You, 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 you could see them standing sometimes with this. And if you wanted to use it, it was so heavy it needed two hands to wield that thing. The word that's used for sword here is the word makaira, which refers to a small sword, 12 to 8 inches in length, more like a dagger, one that you could hold in one hand and easily wield. It was, it was double-edged, so it could cut either way. Sometimes the very end was made into a corkscrew. Obviously, this can be used in close combat with the enemy. And so Paul says, this sword that has been given to you by the Holy Spirit is the word of God. It's the word of God. 
Listen to how the writer of Hebrews describes the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The sword of the Spirit cuts. It penetrates. It's like a surgeon's knife. It, it removes the, the sin in our lives. It convicts us. Sometimes when conviction comes, it's like we're cut to the heart. So this is a, this is a weapon that we use but it's used defensively. How is it used defensively? Well, I need to share with you that the, the word for word, the word translated word is not your typical word. Typically, it's logos. That is the word. The word that's translated word in this passage is rhema, R-H-E-M-A. And what that means is a specific utterance of God. It is a specific scripture a specific statement of God used in a specific situation. We don't, we don't take the, the, the whole Bible, in a sense, to, to fight every battle. Sometimes I just need one verse to fight this war. I need this one verse. And see, this is why it's so important you and I know the Bible. Because if you don't know the Bible and you're kind of oblivious to the Bible, you're exposed to the enemy. It's like you're reaching around trying to find, where do I put that sword? Where do I find the sword? Where can I go get a sword? It's too late. Children in um, Sunday school have a game called sword drills. And typically for kids, they'll, they'll shout out a verse and they'll look it up and they'll raise their hand when they find it. Uh, but if we would practice sword drills, it would be like this. I'm going to give you a, an, some tactic of the enemy. Like, like you're a no good person. And you're going to go, how do I battle that one? How do I battle that? Well, you've got a verse. You've got to memorize. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139. I'm standing on that truth. Stand on the word of God. Here's what God says about me. He says he bought me with the price. He says that I'm loved. If you know it word by word, awesome. But sometimes you just need to generally know what that verse says. And just say, I'm going to hold it. Remember Jesus in the wilderness? Every time Satan threw a temptation, it's like Jesus pulled out his little dagger. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, <laughs> but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, Satan would throw out a lie, and Jesus would jab him back. With the sword. And so we need to know the word. We need to know how to respond to the lies. Because Satan will build up what we call strongholds in the mind. So listen to how, what Paul says about these strongholds. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. How do you tear down the lies that some of you believe for decades? through replacing it or tearing it down with God's truth. Don't listen to the lies. You know, I run into people quite often who are dealing with some very difficult issues in their lives, but one thing I rarely hear is, what scriptures are you holding on to right now in that season of your life? There are times in our life when, for example, we didn't have much, and I relied on the word from Philippians chapter 4, my God will supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. God says he's going to provide. We don't have to worry. He's going to take care of us. Seek first the kingdom of God and, all, and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. God, that's what I'm going to do. You say, if I do this, if I seek you, if I put you first in your kingdom, you'll do all these other things. That's what I'm going to do. And see, whatever issue you're going through, you need to find some scriptures you can hold on to and use in the battle to stand on, to tear down those mental strongholds that the enemy has formed in your life. There's another way, though, that we use the, the word of God, and that's to advance the gospel. We look at Colossians chapter 4, 
Paul says, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. I want to speak the word. I want to help people know you, God. Help me to carry the message forward. And so we do that through the word of God. In 1995, a veteran of World War II wrote a letter to Dear Abby. Remember Dear Abby? Some used to read Dear Abby. And here's what he wrote. He said, I was a demolition specialist in the 99th Division that held the northern shoulder in the Battle of the Bulge. Around January 20th, 1945, we were on the offensive and shells began to fall nearby. I took refuge in a bombed-out building where I found a New Testament open to Psalm 20. There were two bloody thumbprints on the pages. Evidently, the soldier had been reading the Bible when the medics picked him up. He said inside the Bible he found a name of a church. He wanted to know if she could help him find the man who, whose Bible it was. And when I read that, I thought of something different. I said, what in the heck is in Psalm 20 that this man would hold with bloody fingers? So I started looking. I opened up the Bible. Psalm, Psalm 20. You know what I found? I think this is what he was reading. Psalm 20 says, some, this, is verse, this is Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. What are you holding on to that God has given you through his word that you would hold on to so firmly you'd do it with bloody hands? The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, I want to pause here before I get to the last one and show you something because what, what Paul has presented for us is, is very practical. Because I want you to look up here at, a, at the defensive strategy. Why do we need truth? To combat Satan's lies. Why do we need righteousness? Why do we need to live right? Why do we need to trust in Christ's righteousness? Because we can defend ourselves against his accusations that we're not worthy, that we're not good enough. Why do I need to have the gospel of peace? To fight divisiveness. That's one of Satan's big weapons, divisiveness in relationships. Why do I need faith? Fight off temptation. I trust that what God's providing is better than what the enemy's providing. And salvation, the helmet of salvation, that takes away the fear that Satan has over so many people. See, it's, it's, it's their strategy to combat the tactics that Satan has. And then we have the offensive tool. We have the, the Word of God, which can go forward and invade Satan's territory to reclaim back things that rightfully belong to you or, or to God. And so we can move forward. And yet there's one other piece. It's not really a piece because Paul doesn't connect it to any piece of armor, but it is very vital for the war. And I call it the secret weapon. The secret weapon is prayer. The secret weapon is prayer. Paul said to keep on praying in the Spirit for all kinds of prayers for the saints. And then he asked for prayers for himself. Prayer is not an intercom that you occasionally push the button and communicate with God. It is, it is a constant walkie-talkie conversation with your commander. It is staying in tune with God so that you know his plan for your life. When you have, have surrendered yourself to God's will... And when you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, God, as it is in heaven, your heart starts to get in line with God's heart. It's like we're getting on the same page. God's not getting on my page. I'm getting on his page. And there's power when you get on God's page. Because when you ask according to his will, your prayers are powerful. And so Paul says, cover everything in prayer, all kinds of prayers. All kinds of prayers. Pray, pray constantly. It's a, it's a daily conversation. It's not Sunday morning only. It's not 
when I get up, that's the only time I talk to God. It is an ongoing conversation. You pick up that walkie-talkie, and you talk to God. You talk to him about everything, all kinds of prayers. Confession, thanksgiving, supplication, intercession, all kinds of prayers. Keep on praying. Why? Because God unleashes power to the man or the woman, no matter how old they are. You might be a child. You might be a teenager. God hears your prayers, and God empowers you for victory through the war. We win victory through prayer. In fact, the greatest spiritual victory you'll ever win will come through a simple prayer of surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord. It's a prayer that's very humble, saying, God, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve this. And I'm a casualty in this war, but I give my life to you. I accept the fact that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I offer myself to him that he would be the leader of my life, that I would live in his power and in, in his guidance every day forward until the day that I get to spend eternity with him. It's a prayer of surrender. You know, right now, I read something real powerful. Since March of this year, there have been over 1,000 um, soldiers in basic training at Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri who have given their lives to Jesus Christ. Amen. More than 1,000. Yeah, isn't that great? The chaplain there is a man named Jose Rondon, and he says, I've never seen anything like this in 25 years of ministry. What, what's happening? What's happening to these soldiers, these tough guys who have the physical armor? Well, they don't have the spiritual armor. I think some of them realize they could die in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in some other country. They could die. And they've come to realize they need God's help in their life. They need God's grace and forgiveness. The challenge is too great for them. The battle's too intense for them. They need the peace that he can give. They recognize the life and death stakes of warfare. Do you? Do you? Do you recognize there's a battle over your life? and You can't handle it on your own. You need the Lord. And when you pray to surrender your life to Jesus, God becomes your defender. Listen to this, this verse. This is from the book of Deuteronomy, book in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 24. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies. Why? To give you the victory. God wants to make you victorious in this battle. It all begins with the surrender to Jesus Christ.